0: touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland and today I wanted to address some listener mail and, and do a full episode based upon a request. This comes from Chris via email. Now Chris wrote an incredible email, very long, lots of different stuff in it. And lots of different suggestions, one of which was about the topic we'll be covering today. So here's that section of the email. (laughs) So don't don't be alarmed. I'm going in medias race. This is the middle of the email here, or really the end. Lastly, I was hoping in the future to see topics covered like how electronics work, transistors, capacitors, chips, etc. I worked at Radio Shack for five years and got really interested in electronic components, but found them pretty confusing. That is perfectly understandable. I still have to look up the various components and remind myself what each one does, because I don't tend to work with electronic circuits that frequently. And I know in general what needs to happen, but sometimes I forget the specifics, because uh, there's a lot of stuff there. And if you aren't familiar, if you're not always working in that world, it can very easily slip away from you. And we are talking about lots of different components that you measure using different units. And after a while, you just start to, you know, if you, again, if you're not just naturally inclined to this kind of stuff, you start to pull your hair out. Except in my case, that's already been done for me. So I just kind of rub my head. So let's start with the basics. And I know this is going to sound incredibly basic, but we have to build a foundation before we can start talking about the components. So electronics are all about leveraging electricity. Not a big surprise. You're, you are leveraging electricity in order to do something, to accomplish something. Like a radio is meant to receive and amplify radio signals and, and convert them into acoustic signals so that you can actually hear them. That, that's a simple example. A flashlight is meant to channel electricity to end up, uh, powering A light bulb, which is essentially a resistor, we will talk about those, that uh, heats up. We're talking about a basic incandescent light bulb here uh, and gives off light as a result. That's your basic use of that kind of electronics. So we're going to talk about how electronics control electricity. These basic components are all used to do that so that you can accomplish whatever the goal of your electronic device is. Now, most electronic devices have lots and lots of different components to them, sometimes worked in various uh, configurations, whether they're in series or in parallel. I'm not going to get into all of that because that's beyond what I really wanted to focus on in this episode. Instead, in this episode, I want to talk about the very basic components and what they are intended to do. These are the things that make up the circuits that you would see in physical circuitry. So if you ever have, uh, you know, a, a, an old electronic device and you were to take it apart and you saw all these little weird doodads on a circuit board, I'm going to tell you what those doodads do, dad. All right. So first, we describe in electronics materials as having electrons that fall into certain energy bands or electronic bands. Now the two important ones that to talk about are the valence band and the conduction band. Electrons in the conduction band are able to move freely through the material in question, assuming the conduction band isn't totally full. You can think of it kind of like a uh, think of it like a nightclub. It's a nightclub that's maybe you know eighty percent full, so you can still move through it freely. Now, if that nightclub's packed, you're not going anywhere. So there has to be, you know, almost but not quite full for you to be able to move around. That's the conduction band. That's the basics of electrical conductivity. Uh, whereas the valence band is kind of this, um, this, this basic energy level. And there is a gap between the valence band and the conduction band. Uh, it is called the band gap. And depending upon the material, that band gap will be of a certain size. And in some cases, the gap is insurmountable. You cannot get electrons from the valence band into the conductance band, and you cannot get them to flow, at least not under normal operating circumstances. So in that sense, think of, uh, you got a, a like a holding room before you can get into the nightclub, and the the doorway going into the nightclub has got a big old bouncer in it, and that big old bouncer is not letting anyone through, that's your band gap. You cannot, there's no one, even collectively, all of you working together, you're not going to be able to budge that bouncer. That would be as if you were in a non-conducting material, and I'll get into more of that later. Whereas if you're in a room where there's a wide open door and you're allowed to go through as long as someone else is coming in, that would mean that you could flow through properly. You got, you got electrical, electrical conductivity going on there. And I'll talk more about that in a second. I realize this analogy isn't perfect, but I'm just trying to simplify things for those who haven't really taken this kind of, uh, class in physics. So a large gap would represent a great deal of energy needed to move electrons from the valence band to the conductance band. And sometimes that gap is so large as to be impossible to cross, again, under normal operating conditions. So let's look at the basic materials that we talk about in electronics, conductors, insulators, and semiconductors. Pretty simple to understand. Conductors have high electrical conductivity. That means they facilitate the flow of electrons Uh, They have a nearly full but not completely full conduction band. Electrons can move freely through this material in response to an electric field applied to that material. So you apply an electrical field to this material. It will then allow electrons to flow through freely. This is the stuff that moves electrons from point A to point B. You apply a voltage across it, and you get electrons to flow. That's current. Although, technically, current flows from positive to negative, as opposed to the flow of electrons, which is from negative to positive. Uh, we can thank lots of early uh, thinkers for that confusion. So current flow and electron flow are in opposite directions. Thank you, Benjamin Franklin. Uh, all right, so then you've got Insulators. These do not have electrons within the conduction band, or they have a full conduction band. So, again, no room for electrons to move around. So there are no free electrons. They impede the flow of electrons through that material. And most solids fall into this category. Metals are uh, an exception, but most solids are insulators. Uh, so at normal operating parameters, you wouldn't be able to apply a strong enough electric field to make them conduct electricity. So you could apply an electric field to these things, uh, but it wouldn't be able to jump that gap between the valence band and the conductance band. So it would just stop. You wouldn't have any electrical flow through that at all. So we use insulators for things like insulation on wires where we, we wrap the wires in that to help prevent leakage or uh, interference. Because as we've talked about many times on this show – The flow of electricity is also very closely related to magnetism and vice versa. So you have to be able to limit interference between different wires if you don't want there to be that interaction, obviously. Uh, Otherwise, you can end up causing shorts, which is when you have an unintended connection between two different elements of a circuit, and it allows electricity to pass from one to the other, almost like you think of it like a shortcut, You know, when we say an electrical short, and it means that the device itself will not work properly because the electricity is not flowing through the pathway you had intended it to go in. All right. Then we've got semiconductors, and we'll talk more about them a little bit later. But in general, semiconductors have an almost empty conduction band and an almost full valence band. And the band gap is relatively narrow. So if you don't apply a strong enough electric field, it acts as an insulator. But when you apply the right amount of energy in an electric field, it will allow electrons to jump from the valence band to the conductor band and move freely within the material. You do this by doping the material, which is when you insert impurities into the semiconductor on purpose. Doping a semiconductor, which is all about introducing impurities specifically at at predetermined levels, uh, will determine the energy levels required to do this. And that's the basis for solid state electronics. We'll get into more about semiconductors toward the end of this. And we also have to remember voltage and current. Something that I always have trouble remembering. So voltage is a lot like water pressure. All right, that's that's the the amount of electrical pressure being applied. And the higher the voltage, the more electrons want to move from the concentration of electrons to the more positive side. Now, the actual flow of electricity is the current. So uh, they are related, but not the same thing. So voltage and current. And then you multiply those two to pa- together and you get the power. So voltage times current equals power. All right, so those are your basics. Now we're going to go through and talk about the very individual components and what they do. So first we have resistors. A resistor does pretty much what it sounds like it does. It resists but does not halt the flow of electricity. I'm going to talk a lot about electricity in terms of water because it is a useful analogy and it's also very common to talk about the similarities between electricity flowing and water flowing when you're discussing these components. So let's say that you have two different pipes. You've got a brand spanking new pipe. It's shiny and beautiful and free from any uh, any irregularities, and it allows water to flow through with a minimum of resistance. That water is just flowing right through easily. you got a second old gnarly pipe. And this one's got calcium buildup in it. There are all these bumps and stuff on the inside. So water actually encounters resistance, friction, if you will, as it's flowing through. And it does not flow through as easily. Resistors are like that old gnarly pipe. And they are invented on purpose for specific reasons. So why would you want to have an electronic component that actually slows down or impedes the flow of electricity for some reason. Well, sometimes you have to limit the amount of electricity that can flow through part of a circuit within a given amount of time. Sort of like how a, a faucet, going back to water, how a faucet can limit how much water can flow through your water pipes into your sink. So you wouldn't want just an on-off switch for the water coming into your home. That water is at a much higher pressure, you know, it's it's a higher pressure to deliver the water to your house. And if all you had was an on-off switch and you flipped it, you would have water blasting through the pipe uh, according to the amount of pressure that was built up behind it. That would be a little bit uh, unnerving, especially if you just wanted to have a nice frosty glass of water. So you want to have some sort of limiter on that to control the amount of water that's or the pressure of the water that's coming in. So resistors reduce the amount of voltage placed on other electronic components within a circuit by restricting the amount of current that can flow through the resistor. The reason why this is important is that we cannot create a battery for every single type of electronic device that's out there. It's not practical. So batteries, different batteries, different types of batteries have different voltages. So you could, in theory, develop a battery specifically for a particular type of electronic device that would not require resistors because the battery is providing exactly the voltage needed for whatever electronic components are in that. But It's not practical to do that for everything. Uh, We want standardized batteries, and then we use things like resistors to help control the voltage in those electronic components so that the right amount of voltage is applied to those specific parts of the electronic circuit rather than having to have a billion different types of batteries. That would not be practical. So there are many different types of resistors designed to work on specific amounts of electrical power. Now, some have changeable resistor values dependent upon the amount of voltage placed across them. They're called nonlinear or voltage-dependent resistors. Resistor values can also change when the temperature of the resistor changes. Uh, different types of resistors do this. Some can also be mechanically adjusted. So it all depends upon what you need the resistor for and why you, what you need it to do. That's what would determine which type of resistor you would use. The unit of measurement for a resistor is the ohm, O-H-M, Resistor values are 10% apart from each other, and resistors are color coded with bands of color, or, or rings of color. So the first ring represents the first digit of the resistor's value. So what you would do is you would look at the first ring, whatever color it was, you would cross-reference that with the, uh, with a, a color, uh, uh, index, and it would tell you what the value of the resistor is for the first digit. The second ring tells you the value of the second digit. So then you've got the two, uh, the two digits that are involved. The third tells you the power of 10 to multiply by. So it might be 10,000. And then you would multiply, let's say that your first two digits are a 20, a 2 and a 7. And you would multiply that by 10,000, you have 27,000 ohms there. And the fourth uh, ring would tell you the tolerance of the resistor, plus or minus whatever percentage. Uh, so the physical size of the resistor and the amount of power it can handle tends to be proportional. So in other words, the larger the resistor, the more power it can handle in general. So those are resistors. covers that basic component. Now let's move on to capacitors. All right, so... Capacitors are similar to batteries in that it's a means of storing electrical energy. But unlike batteries, instead of creating an an, uh, electrical flow through a chemical reaction that is steady the entire time, it is designed to release its its entire stored electrical charge all at once. So let's – say you've got two leads of a capacitor, uh, you have a difference in voltage across these two leads. That's when a capacitor is charged. So one lead has a greater buildup of electrons than the other lead does. Uh, now, if you were to connect the leads together, you would short them. Uh, you would have a discharge of that capacitor, and the voltage would equalize across the two. So you get a release of a quick burst of electricity. So capacitors can pass alternating current freely. Uh, AC current will just pass through a capacitor as if it were not really there. Direct current, however, will charge a capacitor. It'll have that buildup of electrons on one side, while the other side doesn't get that buildup of electrons, and then you have that difference in voltage. Alternating current just will uh, pass back and forth through it without any problems, so... Capacitors contain the same fundamental parts. You have at least two conductive plates separated by a non-conductive material. That's the dielectric. The amount of charge held by a capacitor is measured in units called farads, but a farad is a large amount of capacitance, so large that you don't really ever talk about a farad. Instead, we end up talking about microfarads, which are about a, uh, well, which are one millionth of a farad, So much smaller. Farad, by the way, not ferret. Two different things. Nice marmot. Capacitance is dependent upon surface area. So it's directly proportional to the surface area of those leads, those, those capacitive plates. Um, it is uh, indirectly proportional to the distance between the plates. So the greater the distance between the plates, the lower the capacitance. Uh, it's also... Uh, uh, dependent upon the dielectric constant of the insulating material and it, they are used for things that need a quick release of electricity rather than a steady flow so for example a traditional flash on a camera so if you've got an old camera and you've got the 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 flash uh you know it bursts in this quick burst of light well it needs that quick it needs access to a quick burst of electricity in order to do that and that's what uh, capacitors are good for. And it takes some time for the capacitors to build up the charge again so it can do it another time. That's sort of, you know, if you're using the old ones, you hear that noise. It's the the discharge and then charging of the capacitors that require you to take a moment between taking pictures with those old-style um, camera flashes. Now, obviously newer ones use different uh, a different approach but you often have capacitors that actually provide the electricity for those now the voltage of a capacitor cannot change instantly it's important to remember and quick voltage changes in a capacitor produce large current changes capacitors store energy in an electric field now the reason i mentioned all that is because we're now going to talk about inductors and inductors are kind of um, the opposite of capacitors, or really maybe not even opposite is the right way of saying it. In many ways, it, they behave in opposite ways than capacitors do. But we'll get to that. So basically, an inductor at its most basic level is a coil of wires. So sometimes we just call them coils and not inductors. They deal with what is the electrical equivalent of momentum. So if you're familiar with momentum, uh, essentially this is that idea that you get a, you know, objects in motion tend to stay in motion. So let's say you've got a large mass moving at a particular velocity. It has a certain amount of momentum and you have to overcome that momentum to slow down and stop that, uh, that, that mass. So it's the same type of thing with inductors, except we're talking about the electrical equivalent of momentum. We're talking about the flow of electricity. So again, going back to the water analogy, let's say that you've got a water hose, a really long one, several hundred feet long, and you've coiled it up, so it's uh, in a nice long coil, and it's filled with water. There are gallons of water inside this hose, and the end of the hose is tilted at such an angle so the water's not just flowing right out. You put a plunger into the other end, and you start to press on the plunger to push the water out. Now, all of that water is not just going to simultaneously start to move together. It actually is going to take some time for the pressure you are applying to exert enough force to push the water out, to overcome the inertia within that coil of water hose. And once you get that water coming out at the speed at which it can come out, and you let go of the plunger, the plunger is going to continue going down that tube because of inertia. That's the same sort of thing with inductors, except instead of water, we're talking about electricity. So coils of wire will pass DC current, but will block AC current. So in other words, direct current can flow through an inductor, but alternating current would be blocked because it cannot flow the opposite way through the coil. So that makes it the opposite of capacitors. Remember, capacitors would pass alternating current that could flow straight through, but would block direct current. Direct current would charge a a capacitor, but could not just flow through the capacitor. In this case, direct current can flow through an inductor, but AC, alternating current, would be blocked. The standard unit of inductance is the Henry. I wish I could tell you why, but I honestly don't know. I'm sure some of you out there, you electricians, are very familiar with the reason why and could tell me. And feel free to. I uh, I honestly do not offhand know. The inductance of a coil is indirectly proportional to the length of the coil, but directly proportional to the cross-sectional area of the wire so in other words the, the gauge of the wire is important here it's also proportional to the square of the number of turns in the coil and it's directly proportional to the permeability of the core material now the core is whatever this coil is wrapped around now it could be wrapped around air or it could be wrapped around something like iron which is incredibly effective so those are that's what we're talking about with the core it's whatever the wire or is coiled around so when current first starts flowing into the coil, the coil wants to build up a magnetic field. We've talked about this again and again, that you start uh, running electricity through a, a coil of wire that's coiled around a, an, like an iron core, like a nail, and you start to – you create a ma- an electromagnet. Well, once that field is built, while the magnetic field is building, the coil inhibits the flow of current through the the wire. But once the field is built, current can flow normally through the wire. So if you were to have an inductor hooked up to a light bulb, let's say, and you flip a switch so that, you know, technically in, in electronics, we'd say that you close the switch. So you have created a closed path so electrons can flow through. The electrons would flow through the inductor which would start to build up a magnetic field. So at first you would get the light bulb coming on, then it would start to dim a bit because as that magnetic field is getting built up, the light bulb, you know, the electricity would be limited to the light bulb. It would actually act as sort of a resistor and the light bulb would start to get dimmer. But then eventually that ma- that magnetic field would get charged up as much as it can because it's direct current, not alternating current and you would reach a level where it was stabilized. Current would flow fine at that point. You could actually turn off the switch. You could open it, in other words. The magnetic field around the coil would keep current flowing through the coil until that magnetic field collapsed. So even though you turn the switch to off... Because you have an inductor, that light bulb would stay lit until the magnetic field in the inductor collapsed, in which case it would stop inducing current to flow through, and the light bulb would go off. So you the experience you would have is turn the switch on, light bulb comes on, light bulb starts to get dim, light bulb gets bright again. You turn the switch off, light bulb stays lit for a while and then turns off. That's what it would look like to you. So, pretty interesting to me. Uh, now, so an inductor stores energy in its magnetic field, and it tends to resist any change in the amount of current flowing through it, uh, thus making it different from capacitors. Because capacitors store things in electric field, inductors store things, uh, energy, not just things. <laughs> capacitors store energy in electric fields, and inductors store energy in magnetic fields. And... Uh, capacitors resist changes to voltage, whereas inductors resist changes to current. So really interesting about that. So because of this relationship between inductors and capacitors, these two different components are sometimes referred together as dual components because they they are opposites that complement one another. The current in an inductor cannot change instantly. The quick current changes produce the large voltage and inductors store their energy in those magnetic fields. That's what sets them opposite of capacitors because they are all the opposite of those things. And you might wonder, well, what are inductors used for? I mean, that light bulb example seems kind of crazy. Well, they're used for lots of stuff. For example, if you've ever gone to... Uh, like traffic lights that are, that respond to the presence of vehicles. Most of those are using inductors. So underneath the pavement where you're driving on top of, you know, there are giant coils of wire. And when you stop your car at a stoplight that has one of these systems, your car starts to act as the core for that inductor loop. You've got this massive amount of steel that's right there that affects the inductance of the that cable you have a meter attached to the cable that measures the inductance so when it measures a change in inductance that meter knows there's a vehicle at that location and sends that information to the control unit for the traffic system and thus changes the traffic cycle so that you get a green light faster so if you're ever at one of those intersections where uh, the the Light cycles depend heavily upon whether or not there are cars present at the intersection. That's, generally speaking, what is happening. You've got these inductors. The inductance changes, sends the message to the meter, or rather the meter detects the the change in inductance, and then sends that on to the traffic control system that will then, at least in theory, get you on your way a little faster. So that's inductors. Now let's take a look at transformers, which are more than meets the eye. So I'm not talking about Autobots and Decepticons as much as I would love to do that. Instead, I'm talking about the basic electronic component. So let's say you've got a single core, like like that iron nail, let's say. And you put multiple coils of wire over the same iron core And then you force a DC current through one of those coils of wire. Not all of them, just one. Now, as that current charges, it will induce current to flow through the other coils wrapped around that same core. And constantly changing the voltage of that primary coil, the one that you've got attached to some sort of voltage generator, will cause currents that change in a similar fashion in the other coils. Now, if the other coils have more loops than the primary coil the voltage will be greater, but the current will be lower. I'll explain that in a second. So let's say we've got... We'll make it really simple. We'll just do two coils. Let's say we've got an iron core, and we've got a primary wire coiled around it 10 times. And we have a second wire coiled in the same direction around that iron core, but it is coiled 20 times. And we apply a varying voltage across the primary wire The voltage across the second wire will be twice as much because there are twice as many coils, but the current will be half as much as that in the primary coil, and that's because you have to conserve power. You cannot create or destroy power. You have to conserve it, and power, like I said earlier, is equal to voltage times current. So if we double the voltage, but ultimately the power in the secondary coil has to be the same as the primary coil... And the only way to to address that is to have the current so that's you know that's what happens so if the second coil is coiled in the same direction as the primary like i was saying before the voltage is in the same polarity as that of the generator the primary coil if the second coil is coiled in the opposite direction of the primary coil then the voltage is in the opposite polarity from the primary coil Polarity is really important, but also pretty complicated. So I'll probably spend another episode to explain that concept because it's really a bit much to go into right now. Uh, But anyway, this is the basics for power transmission using alternating current. It's the reason why we have alternating current distributing our power instead of direct current. So in that old Tesla versus Edison argument... Really, I should say Westinghouse versus Edison argument, where Edison was saying direct current was best, and Westinghouse was saying no, alternating current was best. The, the things that let alternating current win out over direct current were that using transformers, you could boost the voltage to huge high voltage numbers, which were great for power transmission. You could transmit over vast distances using high voltage wires. And then you would use other transformers on the opposite end to step down the voltage until you reach the level that was safe for homes, which in the United States is 240 volts. Uh, now, keep in mind that when you're talking about transmission voltages, it could be anywhere between 155,000 to 765,000 volts. So we're talking huge dis- differences here. And it's all because you can use this basic element of electronics with these uh, transformers to step up or step down the voltage simply by using different coils along a core. So that was incredibly useful. You could end up transmitting power over great distances. Direct current, however, is very different. Uh, it is most efficient if it is close to whatever the load is on the line. So the load is whatever the electricity is meant to power, so, in the case of homes, you would want the power plant to be relatively close to the homes that are receiving electricity if you were using direct current um, This is you know it would be incredibly useful to have direct current powering our homes because most of the stuff we have relies on direct current. It actually has to convert the alternating current that comes to the house into direct current. You have these uh, converters that are part of the electronics that allow it to do that. If you had direct current being uh, uh, supplied directly to your house, you wouldn't need the conversion part of those devices. However, you wouldn't be able to transmit it over great distances like you can with alternating current. So uh, in case you're wondering about the power grids in the United States, we, I, I mentioned that you have those those high voltage lines that are carrying between 155,000 to 765,000 volts. When you get to distribution levels, you step down that voltage to less than 10,000 volts typically, and then you get to distribution buses that have transformers that reduce it further to 7,200 volts or less, and then you have the homes that are connected to a final transformer that step it down again to the voltage of 240 volts or so. So incredibly useful. And, um, here at How Stuff Works recently, as of the recording of this podcast, we had a lovely, um, transformer fire right next to the building we work in, which uh, cut power to our part of the building for some time. So if you've ever been near a transformer when it's blown, it's a pretty spectacular thing. It's usually lots of sparks and a really loud bang and often requires the work of dedicated personnel to re- repair and it does also typically mean that you have a loss of power for at least uh, a localized area. Uh, pretty impressive when it happens. Luckily, it doesn't happen all that frequently, though electrical storms and areas of uh, or, or times of great use can make them more vulnerable. Now let's move on to semiconductors and how they are used in electronics. So we've got lots of different uses for semiconductors. I'm going to talk about two specific ones. There are diodes. Diodes are really useful. They allow current to flow in only one direction. So it's like a a one-way channel or a valve. So electricity flowing one way is fine, but it cannot flow back the other way. And semiconductor doping allows for this to happen. Remember I mentioned earlier, doping is when you have introduced impurities into the semiconductor material to give it specific uh, uh, features. So there are two different types that we're going to talk about. There's n-type layers of semiconductors. So you can think of that as an excess of electrons. It has lots of negative uh, electrons that are just ready to flow out of there. And then you have p-type layers and these have electron holes or at least you know in other words the capacity to to take on electrons so if you pair this together you get what's called a pn diode which only allows electricity to flow in one direction it can the electrons can come through uh, and flow to the, the, the holes, but they can't go the other way. So very useful in electronic components where you need to direct the flow of electricity along a particular path and prevent it from coming back through that pathway. Transistors are another type of semiconductor that use a small amount of current to control a large amount of current. So while a diode is PN, transistors are either PNP, or NPN. And if you apply an electrical current to the center layer, which is also known as the base, electrons will move from the N-type side to the P-type side. And that initial small current allows for much larger current to flow through the material at that point. So transistors act as switches or amplifiers. Incredibly useful. So when we talk about transistors in solid-state electronics, these are the things that allow us to build logic circuits, and it's because we can uh, allow electrons to either flow or prevent them from flowing. It's also why things like electron tunneling can be such a problem. Electron tunneling is a quantum effect. So you can think of an electron as not really existing in a specific point in space at any given time, but rather having the potential to exist in an area of space at any point in time. So think of it like a cloud where an electron could be, and that cloud covers all the potential places the electron could be, and there's different probability for different parts of the cloud. If your transistor gates are so small, so narrow, so thin, I guess I should say, not narrow, that the cloud of potential can overlap the transistor gate, that means there is the possibility that at some point the electron could exist on the other side of the transistor gate, even if the gate never opened. And if there's a possibility, that means sometimes it does appear on the other side of the gate. We call it electron tunneling. It's not really tunneling. It's just if there is the possibility that it could be on the other side, sometimes it is on the other side which means that you cannot actually control the flow of electrons. In that case, it would mean that your transistors would be ineffective in doing what they're supposed to do. They wouldn't really be able to act as switches reliably, and you would get errors uh, in your computations. Now, it might work most of the time, and then only some of the time not work, but even then, that's problematic, which is one of the engineering challenges that... Uh, transistor designers and, and multi uh, or rather microprocessor designers encounter all the time you know finding new materials that are better at uh, acting as transistors switches is a big part of it and coming up with different architectures to really take advantage of electron flow is another big part of it all right. So those are the basics, the basic electronic components that you can talk about with, uh, you know, if you're looking at it from a very high level. Obviously, there's tons of other stuff that I didn't get into, and some of it just requires you to pair up or uh, otherwise put into series or parallel some of the components I've mentioned to, to get whatever effects you want. But those are the basics. So when you look at those different components, you can remember that this is all about making sure that the electrons are behaving in the way that makes whatever it is you intend to do possible. I want to thank Chris for sending that email in and asking about this because it was fun to cover this te- this uh this topic again and to really kind of dive in more deeply than I had before. And I want to encourage you guys to write in and ask about other topics, whether it's a technology or a company or a person, uh, wh- or maybe it's someone that you want to have on the show, either as a guest host or someone for me to interview. Any of that is fine. Please let me know or just feedback in general about the show. I would love to hear more from you guys. Send me a message. The email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or drop me a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. The handle at all three is techstuffhsw. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.